Black people. Tell black history. <laughs> we were doing we were. something we very were. different. We were together around this time a year ago. Was it around? No, we weren't. No. Oh, not yet. Not yet. We were almost together. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Everything oh, happened, happened on the it just felt like it happened over That's many right. days. 7 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. How serendipitous. Yep. Thank you so much for doing this with us and yes. joining us. I know that you have a brand spanking new birthing center, birthing home, the only of its kind, yes. black owned in the state of Virginia. The only one now because the beloved Marsha Jackson has retired. So I'm it. Yeah. For the entire state, which is yeah. Yeah. tragic. Yeah. Well, welcome so. to another episode of Black People Tell Black mm-hmm. History. We have the honor and the privilege to interview and lift up our most amazing midwife. Yes. Um, we want to really get into a fantastic conversation about midwifery and uh, queer conception and being trans and non-binary and giving birth and navigating these spaces, mm-hmm. um, bringing kids earthside and navigating these very harmful institutions in the process uh, and as black people, as black people in yes. general, right? And, but I think to begin, I think yes. it would be great, Rashad, if you introed yourself rather than us giving an intro and then we will tell the people how you changed our lives because I think that needs to be said as well. I did not. I didn't <laughs> put tissue anywhere near me. <laughs> and you can also say how you are, how you feel, okay. where you are, yeah, in mental, emotional, physical. <sighs> however, you want to start that off. It, it includes all of that, not just the the biographical information. You you like candy. You were alive. You were yes. alive. So people go. People already know, but you let the people know how you want to let them know. Reintroduce yourself. Yes. Y'all are too good to me. Um, so first, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Rasha Tahani Lawler Queen. Uh, that is my legal name. That is my birth name. <laughs> uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I am a fourth generation midwife. I come from traditional midwives, nurse midwives, uh, certified midwives, and uh, I am a mother. I had three children at home, uh, all of them very much past their due dates, very past, very much past the, the window of, oh, this is a good time to have a baby. I, my babies were like, yeah, no, we're going past that. Um, and they are all very big now. They've gone to many births with me. Uh, I have, I'm married. I'm very queer. I have an amazing spouse um, who keeps me sane. Uh, and keeps me grounded and supports me in this journey that I'm on in serving the community and prioritizing the health and wellness of Black people, Black queer people, Brown people, Indigenous people. Um, I have been a midwife for over 20 years. Uh, Let's see, what else? I opened the Community Birth Center, which was South Los Angeles' first birth center in 2011. Uh, it's very yeah. important I mention that because uh, it was opened 
less than three blocks from my grandmother's house, who's the midwife. And she used to come and sit with me in there and she would sit with our clients. So that is a part of my history that is very important to me. Uh, That grandmother I still call now, who helps me with my new project, my new baby, which is uh, Gather Grounded Midwifery's Birth Cottage in Virginia, uh, Midlothian, Virginia, Mm -hmm. just outside of Richmond. So I've made a cross-country move, relocation, and the birth cottage is dedicated to amplifying and demonstrating traditional midwife, excuse me, traditional midwifery of Black midwives and Indigenous midwives. Uh, In Virginia, it's actually a really wonderful place to practice traditional midwifery. You have to be licensed. Um, They do require licensure in the state, but they support and uphold traditional midwifery, meaning uh, the use of herbs and homeopathics and uh, just returning to the midwifery of our grandmothers and our ancestors. Um, I'll say our grandfathers as well, because they were midwives too. Um, And I have the distinct privilege of hopefully helping uh, more Black midwives become licensed in the state, but be able to study traditional midwifery without having to deal with some of the barriers and struggles that come with trying to become a midwife in this country. So that's, that's me. That, and that was Rashad's very humble rendering. Yes. Of who she is and what she does. Because Rashad is not going to really pop it, you know, on y'all how she could. Yes. But that's what we're here for. Yes. Her clients, the multitudes throughout this 20 years is how blessed were we to have cross paths um, with somebody not just of your just somebody like you beyond what you do beyond you being a midwife um even though you are super well world renowned i mean this is an international you know midwife that we're talking about here Mm -hmm. you know beyond it went from being on slawson to you know being all the way across the world (laughs) you know delivering people's babies and delivering the parents too in the process You know, I felt very delivered by you in yes. a lot of ways. I am not, that is not hyperbole. And I told, I, we, me and Erica, I was reflected on our relationship with you. And I said, during that time, I never, outside of my grandma and like, you know, maybe my mom and my aunts and Erica, I've never had that type of care before in my life that you provided. Um, just how... I just it it just went beyond what I thought the scope of midwifery was, but you put me up on so much game of like, no, this is actually what this looks like. Yep. It is actually community care. It is actually communal in nature. You you gave me the game on how this was done, how our people, when they created midwifery, um, how that how it was practiced and the sort of African indigenous legacy and history of how midwifery is so embedded into the community beyond pregnancy and beyond birth. Yeah. Um, it's an everyday, beyond nine month um, part of life. And I really felt that uh, working with working with Rashad. Um, and so I feel like the acknowledgement, in order to start this episode of Black People Tell Black History, welcome everybody, Erica felt and I felt it was important to just talk about the serendipitous nature of how we came to be. And now on the week of Issa's, our first child's birthday, um, the person who brought, helped bring the child into the world. Like, 
it's all coming very full circle. Mm-hmm. So I'll let you sort of sort of talk about that. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to do this without crying, but I, you know, am forever indebted to you, Rasha, for, you know, um, y- yeah, <laughs> I'm like try to do this without crying for like a cry a week, but um, cheese mm, Louise, um, sorry, it's okay. It's okay. Um, giving birth is already a very vulnerable space. Um, it's really scary. I think immediately when we, at least when I saw the positive pregnancy test, I was sorry. I was excited, and then I immediately was like. Holy shit! Like, mm. what? What does that mean? <laughs> like, there, you know, I, you know, I always dreamed of being pregnant and taking these pictures and doing IUI and having a belly and being on a beach pregnant. But then it was like, wait a minute, there's going to be a baby there. <laughs> like, there's going to be a human, and it's just so many things that mm. run through your mind. Like, is the baby going to stay? Like, are we going to have a miscarriage? Is, is an ectopic pregnancy? There's just so many feelings that rush through that. Even before East was Earthside, you helped us sort through um, a lot of those feelings. Just, you know, I thought a midwife helped you get everything you needed for the baby. The bassinet, the diapers, the wipes. How do we breast? I don't have nipples. I don't have nipples. How do we breastfeed? Like, what does feeding look like? I thought that was it. But there was so much more that you provided uh, emotionally for us to try to get us emotionally prepared. And then we had an emergency birth. And here's the thing I don't think people understand. East is from uh, Manhattan, okay? Mm-hmm. Was born on the east side of Manhattan. And Rashad lives in Virginia. And it took her, I think, 30 <laughs> minutes to get to New York. I yeah. do not know how. Yeah. I don't know how. She was on the phone with me, calming me down, and never once told me that I was going to go in labor. I thought that I was going to have to give this baby. I thought that, deliver the baby. I thought that I was going to the hospital to um, be on bed rest because I had high blood pressure. Because I always thought, oh, high blood pressure. If I get preeclampsia, I'll just have to go and be in the hospital on bed rest for a week Mm -hmm. or a month, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm trying to get centered around, but I never, it never occurred to me when my blood pressure was read that high that I would have to give birth. And Rashad also did not say that to me, which was so helpful as I was in an Uber from Brooklyn to New York. I didn't need to know that, but Ebony knew that. And Ebony also knew not to tell me that because Ebony was like, I, you know, I packed a bag for you. And I was like, I don't know why you packed a bag. We're just going to go to the ER and then we're going to go home. Right. And, you know, getting to the hospital, I already have all of these fears of a medical institution for obvious reasons. But if you're not familiar, I'm a breast cancer survivor and just a lot of medical racism that I've endured. And I wanted to have a baby at home. So walking into this space, I'm like, wait a minute, are we, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want this to happen. And I just, you know, doctors come with their own energy 
Uh, Ebony is on the phone with family members, I, and I'm just kind of sitting there. And New York like, has the highest mm-hmm. li- mater- black maternal, maternal mortality. mortality. So I'm I'm scared. Like mm-hmm. I'm just sitting there, and Rashad walking in was just such a such a light for me, and such a grounding moment. And the things that she were thinking of is something that Ebony and I would have never thought of. So going into a C-section. Rashad thinking, okay, they're going to take the baby away to the NICU. Ebony is going to need to go with East and I'm going to come and be with Erica. Mm -hmm. Like that, I mean, oh, it's just like those things like people don't think about. Mm -hmm. And like, I really needed that. Mm -hmm. Sorry. It's okay. Don't apologize. It's like you provided a moment not to like... Not to think, like, the mental load of being a parent is so much. And it begins as soon as you see that positive pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. And going into that experience and being so scared to have you and to have Mm -hmm. you, Ebony, like, I just, I just could not thank you enough. I really can't. And yes, you may be thinking, like, well, Erica, didn't you pay Rashad? Yes, we pay Rashad. <laughs> yes, Rashad we got to eat. Rashad got kids. We pay Rashad. <laughs> but it, Rashad went above and beyond. Like, anything that East we was supposed to be born in March, March 21st. You know, and Rashad kept telling us babies come when they want. And I'm like, yeah, Rashad, that's cool. But this baby really needs to come March 21st. Logistically. <laughs> March 21st. So Art, like, really, truly, Ebony and I were not prepared for East February 8th. Okay? People no. need to understand that. We were not ready. Our house was not together. We did not have no bassinet. We didn't have no damn formula. We didn't know how we were getting formula. We didn't have baby clothes. Nothing. We had nothing. And Rashad organized our friends to come over and set things up. She cooked meals. So when we came home, she could support us. Even before we came home, maybe people don't know this, that when you have preeclampsia, they're giving you magnesium to levels where you can't touch a newborn baby. You certainly can't touch a baby that is essentially immunocompromised and needs to go to the NICU. So I couldn't hold East for three days. I didn't get to really even see him. Um, they kind of showed me uh, uh, him and then they whisked him away. Mm-hmm. And Rashad broke the rules at the mm-hmm. NICU and did a FaceTime video. And it just, it literally broke me. Like, I just, I, I just didn't know how much I needed that. It's like, to have somebody there thinking a million steps ahead, um, I, everybody needs a midwife. <laughs> and everybody yeah. needs... Rashad, I'm yeah. sorry. Like every, not all midwives are created equal. Okay, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you, you all know that, or you, maybe you don't know. My mother is deceased, and not having my mother through this process has been the most heart wrenching um, aspect of it. And Rashad made my mom's favorite cake and made it into cookies and put them on the altar. I mean, I, I just. I, I, I could just keep going on and on. That might be the whole podcast. I apologize if this is long, but I need people to know how amazing you are. Like you truly, truly have changed our life. And it didn't stop after her East was a newborn. You have continued to check in. You have continued to support us continue to affirm the way that we want to raise this child. 
Um, and we'll get into some of the postpartum stuff too, but I just, again, am just so thankful for you always, always and forever. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are essentially like what I imagine my mom to be if she were here. So mm-hmm. I just really, yeah, I'm sorry. I hate crying. <laughs> I hate crying on the internet. I feel like it's going to be on the internet. But I, it's just real. You didn't do a selfie of yourself crying. We should have, we should, right. You didn't feel yourself crying. We should have did this last week or something, not this week. <laughs> and I want to tell, and I'm sorry, I don't want to say this, but y'all going to hear from Rashad. I just, no apologizing. No apologizing. Working with this particular hospital system, mm-hmm. not very well regarded. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they were in there wearing Black Mamas Matter pins yeah. and, yeah. you know, they were in there putting it, laying it on pretty thick because yeah. of the negative publicity most hospital systems in New York get yeah. for their treatment of Black people. New York hospital systems kill Black birthing people. Yes. A lot. Yes. Um, it happens. Some of the lo- the highest it's numbers. Some of the highest numbers is mm-hmm. staggering mm-hmm. for a quote unquote um, world power, country that's mm-hmm. a world power. Mm-hmm. Um, it's staggering the number mm-hmm. of black people that are killed. So they are aware of that. So when we come in, they're kind of looking at us and like, well, let me try to do, like, let me have this very delicate PR kind of mm-hmm. moment where, you know, all of the hospital staff presiding, you know, they're, a lot of them are white. There are some people of color. There are some black folks um, on the hospital staff. But Rashad is the front line working with them to make sure that Erica is not just treated with dignity, but the actual mm-hmm. medical care that is received can be checked, mm-hmm. can actually be looked at and evaluated. I don't have that acumen. I'm also about to have a baby in a way. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there, you know, I'm trying to calm Erica down, I'm trying to calm myself down, stay centered do my prayers, do all of this. So I'm not able to be like, well, what's the level of this? And what's the oxygen of that? And where the be- I, yeah. That's Rashad having those conversations and working. One of the biggest misconceptions that people have, I think, and Rashad will talk more about that, is about how uh, maybe mid- midwifery is anti-hospital or midwives are anti-doctor. And it's mm-hmm. like, midwives were the doctors. Midwives are doctors. Are the doctors. <laughs> they <laughs> but are the, doctors. But the way, but the, the ironic part about that type of narrative, that false narrative, is that in the absence of midwifery, what would we have mm-hmm. for our medical system today? How OB, literally the OBG, OBGYNs were created mm-hmm. and, and the origin of which is the eradication of midwives, most of whom, majority of whom, were black and indigenous mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So the irony of today, 500 years later, people say, oh, midwives are anti-doctor when that's the that was their practice. But also it doesn't, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, if I had an OBGYN, I, I, people are like, I think there's this like assumption that I wouldn't have gotten preeclampsia if I didn't have an OBG, if I had an OBGYN. And it's like an OBGYN was not going to stop me, my body developing preeclampsia because mm-hmm. what we've learned is that preeclampsia is coming from the sperm, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever sort of sperm donor we have was predisposed to like preeclampsia or whatever. And then that's maybe how this happened, right? But it didn't mm-hmm. matter mm-hmm. a midwife OBGYN, it would have happened. But the thing is, is that if I had an OBGYN, 
it would not have looked like this. Mm. Yes, East would be Earthside, but that OBGYN maybe. would be on, maybe, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe I would be here, right? Maybe. Because sometimes, a lot of times, OBGYNs are not even available, right? They're not there the day that you go into labor, right? They're not participating, but also they certainly would not have cared for us in the way that Rashad did. Mm-hmm. Rashad came to our house. Ain't no OBGYN coming to nobody's mm-hmm. house. Ain't no OBGYN sitting in the room with you. I could not walk after my C-section. Mm-hmm. Like, they were like, you have to now go to the bathroom when they took the catheter out. And I was so sad. Remember, Rashad I was like, please just leave the catheter in mm-hmm. for a little bit longer. Yeah. I could not walk. Rashad walked me to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. No OBGYN is doing that. No. Wow dealing with the criminalization and the legal in the process and the legislative and assholes diminishing midwifery but in the, just, while she's sitting there right but i'm yes. saying in the course of before you open <laughs> the current birth center now you were not only providing care to multiple families including ours but you were dealing with a lot of challenges in opening your current birth center. Um, and we would have never known how challenging that was for you. I think people look at you and it's like, well, you deliver babies and this is what you do and this is your work. But it's like, there's no, there's a almost a dehumanization that comes with being at the level that you're at and doing what you're doing. Um, so, Well, because the dehumanization right. starts with being black. That's right. That part. That's right. That part. So anything else we do after that is yeah. like, right. and how do you navigate that? How have you navigated that in twenty years of doing this? So it is a lot of uh, going into rooms where I know where I'm welcome, and walking immediately out of yeah. the ones that I am not. Um, I'm not trying to educate people about midwifery mm-hmm. or what midwives do that are not interested in it, that just want to argue or want to, you know, have statistic battles around like, well, this is this statistic and this, and I'm just like, you don't want to hear this. So I'm, I don't need to talk about this with you. Uh, My family, having a grandmother that is alive and well and vibrant at 92 years old, who can remember going to births with her grandmother and who reminds me like, she says, Rashad, you chose that. You chose to go back to the South. She was like, I'm going to support you as much as I can. I'm going to uplift you. I'm going to pray for you because she's a praying woman. Um, but she also reminds me, like, this is what you chose. And when I talk to her about the hardships that Black traditional midwives face. So these are midwives. I identify as a traditional midwife who happens to be yeah. licensed. Yeah. Because, you know. You get a car, yeah. you want to drive, you get a license. How you drive afterwards, yeah. but you get the piece of paper. And so I purposely reached out to her before our conversation because I had to ask her about something that was really difficult because she is a very conservative Southern Christian woman. And I just asked her flat out. I said, grandma, do you remember your grandma helping families that maybe seemed different? or were strange, or like, y'all didn't really talk about them after they left. And she then goes on to tell me the story of this family 
that there was no men. But they came pregnant to my grandma, my great great grandmother, to have their baby. And so my grandmother was basically affirming for me that queer people, trans people have always been cared for by midwives before anyone else, and that that was a safe space for us. And, you know, she's saying it in her in her own Southern Christian way, but it's like hearing that is affirming to me. Because what a lot of people don't understand is that midwifery textbooks don't amplify and uplift the history, the foundation of Black midwives and Indigenous midwives and our midwifery. Um, And so we have to do it for ourselves. We have to remind ourselves. We have to commune together, congregate together, conferences, trainings to be able to keep going. So it's not just me and my mental fortitude and my just like stubbornness to keep going. It's the community. It's my family. It's my grandmother will often say, you know, in every community, tribe, group of people, there's a griot. There's a history keeper. There's a teacher. There's all these people that hold the, 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 the pillars of what grow and keep safe black communities, whether it's a little tiny rural mm-hmm. town somewhere in the South or some black folks yeah. over off of Slauson and Van Ness in LA, yeah. like in every, in every time of the world in the United States, there's always been those pillars in the community, whether they were formally educated, had credentials yeah. alphabet after their name or not, that was their role in the community. And so for me, this role, this position is just like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Everyone has their job in the community when we're working as a collective. That's mine. Mine is to make sure the folks that are having the babies, trying to be pregnant, folks that don't want to be pregnant, that I'm there to support them through that. And the history of, of, of midwives in this country, Black midwives, African midwives, Indigenous midwives, is that spirituality and ritual yeah. was always a part of it. But that was removed with the, you know, the credentialing and the the licensing yeah. and the regulation of midwives. Those things were taken away because it's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And then we also know that black folks that were enslaved here in the United States, they absolutely were not able to keep their mm-hmm. language, their spiritual practices. And so the midwives that were able to hold on to those things, they were even more valuable because it meant that those families' children were going to continue to have access to the things mm-hmm. that yes. they had mm-hmm. taken from them. And so when you talk about, you know, oh, I made food for you and I made sure your house was taken care of because that was always the role of the midwife, black midwives specifically. Black midwives used to come and move in with you for nine days after the birth because they would say, well, you carried that baby for nine months. The least I can do is stay with you for yeah. nine days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it's, 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 it's so many things that make it possible for me to keep going. And there are days where I just, I just lay down. And I'm like, I, I don't even know how I can do this. I don't even know how I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then I do it. I, I mentioned that you, you know, you have your own family, your own children while coterminously doing this work. What was your, if you feel like sharing, what was your experiences as far as, you know, being a queer burger person and what you wish you had then, what you did have that you were appreciative of? Um, that support was supportive, but what were some things that you wish you would have had um, during that time, or even things you know now that you wish you would have known then? Mm. That's a great question. I I have this story that mm. so many Black queer people have: conservative mm. religious upbringing. 
And so it wasn't even an option. I have friends that were queer. I had homies that was queer, but it wasn't even an option. And so going through the like, get married, have babies time of my life, I was also the time that I was studying to become a midwife. I became a midwife when I was, when I became a credentialed midwife while mm-hmm. I was pregnant with my firstborn. I was told in midwifery school, well, no one ever finishes that's pregnant, so you should just quit now. Which, you know, as a black person, that just put a battery in my back. I'm like, watch me work. And so, you know, from the very beginning of credentialed midwifery, being confronted with what was acceptable and what wasn't. And so it meant that, you know, going to midwifery conferences and as a, you know, cishet presenting Black person with a baby and a midwife, it was, oh my goodness, and you're doing God's work and, oh, we love you and, oh, midwives. But what I always remember was listening to some of the conversations that were happening about the queer folks that showed up, about the trans folks that showed up and them not really being welcome. And so that was the first like, ooh, dang, mm-hmm. not even in midwifery either. Like not in religious, religion upbringing, not in midwifery, like mm-hmm. no. And it wasn't until my divorce and just really being like, I'm divorced, I live in Oakland. I was in every training, every workshop about anything that had to do with queerness and sexuality because I felt like that was a huge part of my midwifery that I'd been missing. I was privileged to go through midwifery school with two thirds of my faculty Mm. were queer identifying. And so I got to learn about IUIs. I got to learn about, you know, how to provide reproductive health care to folks that don't identify as women. Folks who don't identify as women that are trying to be pregnant. And so that was pretty radical. And as a quote unquote Christian, I just thought, well, this is cool. I know how to do some more stuff. This is just going to make me more marketable or whatever. But really, I was just building my own foundation for what would eventually be. And I, I I was fortunate. I got a lot of queer experience and queer support before I even identified in that way or felt comfortable, I should say, being out and being like, this is how I identify. So I was fortunate in that way. I had teachers that were queer and Mm -hmm. radicalized about Blackness who stood up for me and were like, Black midwives to the front and we don't have enough Black midwives in the community. And you know why why that is? Because we, the white women, did that. And I was like, oh, 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 this is great. And, you know, I know so many Black midwifery students and specifically Black queer midwifery yeah. students don't have that. They don't have the textbook that they can open and see queer midwives, queer birth workers, queer educators. It's becoming more prevalent now, yeah. thank goodness. But, you know, I became a midwife pre-internet, really. I mean, there was Facebook, I think, by the time I graduated from midwifery, but like not not the way that it is now, the sharing of information and knowledge. And so being from California and my community being so incredibly queer, I never separated my commitment to the black community as a healthcare provider, as a midwife, I never separated queer folks. It was like synonymous. Like, what are we talking about? And this is even as a quote unquote Christian midwife. It was, well, yeah, they're black though. 
yeah. at the beginning, end of the day. These are Black folks that need care. And now they have even more other things that are making it difficult for them to access care. Yes, pull up to midwifery. And so there was always protocols and training for midwifery students for all the years that I've been a midwife that included the queer community. And so for me, it was just a bonus to be like, <laughs> me too, thank you, y'all. But yeah, I, I, I had queer community before mm. I even knew I needed queer community. And then mm. when I just felt like, oh, this is, this is, these are my people, I'm, I'm where I'm at, then it was yeah. just even more support all the clients for years before that were just like, I, I didn't know you was what? And well, we're so happy. And them making space for me as much mm -hmm. as I made space for them. And as a midwife, we don't, we're not, we're not oftentimes on the receiving end of care or the receiving yeah. end of information yes. that supports yeah. us, yes. that helps us. And so, you know, I give thanks to all of the queer families that trusted me when I was a baby midwife because they were trusting me with, you know, I practiced in states where uh, queer marriage wasn't legal. So I'm helping people grow their families and they're not even legally recognized by the state. So we're figuring out mm -hmm. how to do birth certificates yep. so that people have mm -hmm. equal rights. We're figuring out how to do adoption. We're figuring, like, I was figuring these things out and didn't even have anyone to show me how to do it. It was yeah. just like, well, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. This is yeah. what needs to happen. So I've been very fortunate in that way. And it's it's so lovely to have Black and Indigenous and Brown queer folks come up to me and be like, I want to be a midwife. I want to serve our community. Like, thank you. And can you help me? Can you show me? Can you point me in the direction of? And what I will say millions and millions and millions of times until you know, folks are saying it for themselves, is that just go to Black Femmes. All of the Black Femmes of the 70s and the 60s, and they were radicalized. They were also keeping queer people safe, which meant keeping their families safe, keeping their yes. things, keeping their birthing safe. And so were the granny yeah. midwives. Yeah, and you touched on that when we started, for sure, um, talking about the granny midwives. I feel like what I see a lot in um, birth work, which I which I feel has become a bit of a trend for people to be a part of. When I say people, I mean white people to be a part of and to have access to, instead of them becoming OBGYNs, now they want to be birth workers and have really taken up a lot of space in uh, this arena. I My theory is to be seen as innocent and uh, frail and the continued um, white womanhood <laughs> uh, social work. Uh, paradigm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Same social work um, origins. origins, 100%. To continue to steal um, Black and Indigenous uh, practices and kind of make it their own and put a price tag on it. So can you remind folks the what is the Black history of midwifery? Um, and really, I think it's just the history of midwifery. That's a, yeah, it's a misnomer <laughs> to say Black history. Just, yeah, what's the water of what? You know, what's the well. water? Uh, so I will give you the abbreviated version because the long version would yeah. be the entirety of this yes. time together beyond it, actually. Um, so the abbreviated version is we have the, let me get, make sure I pull it up. So I say it correctly because you know, the statistics that I don't love, yeah, I release them from mm -hmm. my brain. 
so Congress passed the 1921 Shepherd Towner Maternity and Infancy, Infancy Protection Act. And that was the federal aid program, very similar to WIC, food stamps, anything that was for poor people. Mind you, WIC and food stamps came from yes. the Black Panthers, but that's another story as well. But that was the federal government being like, okay, so there's these midwives, we need to train them. Now, mind you, up until this point, this is the 1920s, up until this point, Black midwives had been serving the majority of the population. Indigenous midwives were serving the majority of the population. But there was this aha moment with white people that's right. of, that's where the money is. And so there becomes the beginning of uh, nurses, mm -hmm. white nurses specifically, coming into Black communities and not only undermining those midwives that had been serving the communities for generations, but undermining their skills, undermining their practices, undermining anything that had to do with the way they took care of Black people that wasn't medical. And so Black midwives, then called granny midwives. Now, I just want to roll that back a little bit because people love to say granny midwives and I love to fix that for them. So the term granny midwife was G-R-A-N-N-I-E. And it was used synonymously mm -hmm. with cotton dollies. Those were the midwives that delivered, supported the slaves, enslaved Black mm -hmm. people on the plantation. Mammies were the midwives oh. for in the house. And they also had to take care of the children. So both were considered derogatory, mm -hmm. negative terms. But the grannies persisted Got after it. the mammies were gone. So the grannies, in trying to hold on to some form of dignity, were like, okay, well, you can call us granny. So G-R-A-N-N-Y. Like, you know, yeah. like the way you call somebody your granny. But the issue was that this was a title put upon us by the enslaved, mm -hmm. by, you know, the slave masters. So it was all, it was a derogatory term, no matter what, but Black folks tried yeah. to be like, well, at least let's make it ours. In the 60s, 70s, folks started being like, you know, maybe we should call them grand. 80s, 90s even, maybe we should call them grand, as in these elders that we are elevating, that we are esteemed, and we're taking away that granny piece. So most Black midwives that are of a certain age, <laughs> maybe 40, will use the term grand midwife as opposed to granny yes. midwife because of the history behind that it. Is. So that's that. But they were basically forced into these programs very much like how indigenous children were forced to programs to unlearn their native languages and become more white. Black grand midwives were forced into these programs to learn how to properly care mm -hmm. for the community and properly midwife. And it was very much similar to the way nurses or doctors provided care for people in the hospital, people in clinics. And it got to the point where it, it looked and felt very much like how, um, government funded programs look so coming and checking the midwives homes not just their bags and like what they're using to take care of people mm. but checking their homes to make sure they had a clean home to make sure that they didn't have any contraband in their home that they right. might have been sneaking to births and so as the as the rigor and the limitations got stricter and stricter after a while they just started sending them letters in the mail being like oh guess what we don't need you to do that work anymore. Mm. You're no longer a midwife. And that was a problem because in the 1940s, when my great-great-grandmother was still practicing, more than 60% of Black folks in the Southern states were still being born with the grand midwives. 
in the 1940s, yeah. all the way up into the 60s. So it was a problem. The government was not having it. They didn't like it. And so they shut it down. We have all these amazing books. I stacked some of them next to me. I can share Thank them you. with y'all later yeah. in an email that provide resources and provide documentation of the slow eradication and erasure of black midwives and indigenous midwives in this country. And so where white women thought it would be great to bring midwifery back and let's make it legal and let's, you know, make it so that, you know, the government will be on board with it. Well, that's where we got the credentialing and the licensing of midwives in most states. There are some states that still midwifery is illegal, traditional out of hospital birth with midwives is illegal or it's illegal, meaning you can do what you want, but if you have a bad outcome, you're going to go to jail. So there's that. And even with a license, Black midwives are penalized and brought under harsher standards than their white counterparts. Midwives as a whole. A doctor can have a loss. They can have a baby die. Mm -hmm. They can have a birthing person die. And they might get therapy. They might get a little break. And then it's back to work. If a midwife has a baby die, whether it was a stillbirth, whether it was a miscarriage, like it could be something where there was... It would have happened no matter what, and a midwife could face serious, serious legal repercussions that could completely just devastate their family, their livelihood, their ability to support themselves. Because unlike other healthcare providers in this state, in this, excuse me, in this country, licensed midwives are the only ones where we are everything. So when Ebony was talking about, oh, you were everything, it's because that's a part of being a midwife, Mm -hmm. a traditional midwife, you're everything. You cook for people, you clean, you rub backs, you listen to babies. I have sutured more clients, not vaginas, than anything. People who are like, I trust you. I busted my arm. Come over here and come stitch it up. I'm not going to the ER. Like, that is the role of a traditional midwife and always has. This white woman, Holly Matthews, she wrote a whole study and paper called Killing the Medical Self-Help Tradition Among African Americans. The case of lay midwifery in North Carolina, 1912 to 1983. 83. I was born in 85. Wow. Wow. So when we talk about the Black maternal health crisis, we have to talk about the origin of it all. The origin of it all is whiteness. It was the removing the Black traditional indigenous midwife from the community and saying, you're doing it wrong. And then here we are now in some of the worst statistics of all times. And I've been a midwife for over 20 years and the yeah. statistics have not gotten better yeah. in 20 years. They've gotten worse. Yeah. yeah. So You're doing it wrong. And we're also going to steal everything you did. And then, like you said, credential. Criminal, we'll criminalize you for it. Mm-hmm. We're stealing what you did. We're going to institutionalize it. And they right. criminalize you for doing it because... Truly what this yes. is within whiteness is to continue to exalt whiteness and to continue to subjugate blackness in the same ways or similar ways that there's all these repercussions to uh, being a midwife, right? And practicing midwifery and not being able to practice in certain states unless you have a license and all of these rules that come with that. I'm wondering, like, you kind of already spoke to it a bit, but like the parallels of 
criminalizing black pe- black birthing people, right? And also unaliving black birthing people and practicing midwifery. Does that make sense? Like, it seems like they're running hand in hand. Get mm-hmm. rid of the black midwife, get rid of the black person. Mm-hmm. Stop black people from having children, yeah, but yeah. also want them to have children so we can have a mm-hmm. labor force. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's him. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to t- talk about it without yeah. getting angry yeah. and emotional. Because as someone who is able to step back and look at the big picture mm-hmm. of where we started, where we're at, mm-hmm. and where we're going. And it's all yeah. on purpose. It's all intentional. And what will usually help people snap into, oh, oh, like where they really get it is if I share with them, if white birthing people, white women, white femmes were dying at the same rate and their babies were dying at the same rate as black folks and black babies, they'd have fixed it. it. It'd be fixed. It'd be fixed in a year. It'd be fixed. Before the end of the year, there'd be bills, there'd be money, protests. there'd be programs. Hospitals would be getting, you know, inundated with protests and doctors yeah. being called to be fired. Black people, mm-hmm. black people do that every weekend. Every weekend, we stand in front of a hospital and talk yeah. about yeah. this doctor needs to be fired. This doctor, and people are like, "You're being dramatic." Mm-hmm. Well, she was fat. Oh, well, she yeah. wasn't healthy. Like, but if it was a white person, yeah. it would be fixed immediately. And so you have to remember that part. It is imperative that we remember that the taking away of the things that sustain us and support us as Black people is intentional every single time it happens, whether it's our healthcare providers, our food sources, our water sources, it's all connected. And so for me... I see midwifery in this day and age as a radical act. It's the reason why I always reference the Black Panthers. It's because anyone that is choosing to support Black people in being here and being here safely and being here in their whole entire body as their whole entire selves and helping them have their children or not have children in the ways that they want and still be able to breathe and live and thrive, well, then you're doing something radical. Even though it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. I think the long and short of it. I think how has when you first I'll ask you this. Um it's not a non separate question, it relates to my other it feeds into this conversation and another question I have, but when you what was the dream? I, I often think about when we talk about Black maternal mortality in particular, there's this almost an erasure of the person, like the people that have actually been killed, where you don't, where people are not looking at them as an uh, as a person anymore. That had a life, they had thoughts, they they contributed, they or they they just they. It's almost like you become an embodiment of the the state of maternal mortality and an embodiment of statistic instead of like 
who you are, who they were, who they are, and where they come from, the people they come from. They may have been midwives themselves or anything of that nature. And so similar to that, I do think there is inside of um, cis-heteropatriarchy, this rendering of midwifery as just a type of a devalued labor because of the people who started it. Any type of work that the state lives off of and grieves off of, yeah. but cannot acknowledge because of the power inherent in acknowledging the people who do it. You yeah. have to acknowledge the power that, that midwives hold and that black midwives hold in particular, which is why there's so much legislative, um, they're, they're really putting the gavel down legislatively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On black midwives, mm-hmm. like you said, mm-hmm. to guide the power. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. What was the dream of your life? Like, what is the dream of your life? And have you realized that yet? <laughs> um, what was your dream? What is or was your dream? Like, maybe before you started doing this, because I don't even think you have you have a dream life. You have an inner life. You know, you you're you're not just a labor. Yes. Uh, but lots of people just. Look at midwives that way. Yeah. So I will be transparent. My first dream as a baby, baby 18 year old was to have a home for pregnant black folks that were displaced or were victims Mm. of DV, domestic violence, Mm. or who were, had unstable housing. I wanted to have a home for them and for them to be able to receive midwifery care in that home and that I wouldn't be the midwife. I would just run the home and it would be me hanging out with the kids while they went to job interviews. And, you know, just that's what, that was my dream as a baby, baby 18, 19 year old. And then I started on my midwifery path and I heard all the different stories, all the different ways that black folks had tried to create our own spaces for us where it was like, we have everything we need. We have our own food. We have our own grocery. We have our own this. We have our own that. And how every single time, time and time again, the government would destroy it. I'll just yeah, say yeah. That's all you have to say. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. And so when you know that, it's hard to dream. Because it's like, I help people have babies. What if I create a space and I'm now putting us all in jeopardy? Maybe I'm, I'm making it maybe I'm creating something Mm -hmm. that could be a detriment to the community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a little piece of that. And, Mm -hmm. and so it became difficult to dream about what I wanted or what I would like. And in recent years, especially during the height of the pandemic, uh, the dream was to have a farm, to have a big piece of property, a whole bunch of little, you know, tiny homes or little cabins or just, you know, Mm -hmm. simple living. And to live on the farm and work the farm and also just happen to be a midwife and it be a place where Black folks could come, have their baby, be cared for, you know, be fed by the land and really just be able to get away from whatever their life is if they need to, but have that safe space to go and just be with the land and be, you know, free from a lot of the issues that come with being a Black person in this country and just the constant reminders of, not being enough, not being strong enough, not being smart enough, just all of that and being able to create a space where it's like, come here, where we're just going to pour into you while you grow this human and we're going to just keep you safe and love up on you and you're going to birth your baby in a loving environment and, you know, leave when you want. 
but the reality of that is then, you know, how many black midwives do I know that own a home? How many black people do I know that own homes? Yeah. How many black queer people do I know that own homes, yeah. let alone land, let alone property? And the reality of it just became really difficult. But that was the dream. The dream was to create a place where I could return to my family's roots, my family's farmers and yeah. midwives, beekeepers, and providing that alternative to families. And maybe one day it will be a reality, maybe. But, you know, Gather Grounded Midwifery is the, yes. is the pivot. You know, we have this saying that has become, I've noticed, very popular in academia. And then now it's becoming very popular just as like a catch-all phrase. But it's like, Black folks mm. making a way out of no way. Mm. And I hate that. I hate that. That we're always figuring it out and pivoting and, you know, taking whatever little bits that we got mm. and making it good enough for us. And so, you know, we make amazing, gorgeous, beautiful spaces out of what we, you know, put together. But that's what that's what I have now is is the micro version of that dream of that offering to our community because I've seen how midwifery was specifically with black midwives and indigenous midwives it can completely change the way a person sees themselves and sees themselves as a parent mm -hmm. and how they parent and yeah. then also how they see their community yeah I uh, my question is as much is longer than what we have time for, so I'm just going to shorten it. Um, <laughs> I get a lot of questions from uh, queer and trans uh, folks that are family planning, um, mostly Black queer and trans people who are frustrated about the lack of Black sperm donors that exist. Um, also, a lot of Black and queer and trans families that are already existing. So my question is two parts, but it's much mm -hmm. smaller than what I wanted it to be. The first part is what advice do you give to, or what's like the main advice that you would give to a, a black queer and trans um, person who or people who are wanting to start looking into conceiving? And then what advice do you give to new parents? And I think I asked that for myself. <laughs> What do we do now? Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like East is now that East is one, East is old enough to care for himself. I feel like we've done our job. And, you know, now like Get a job. to kind of walk and stuff. I'm just like, that's okay. how you treat us. So, like, move. so we're, we're, we're done. Like, I feel like at some point I can teach them how to make bottles and we're, so what do we do now? I feel like we need to get out of the way because he don't even want us to hold him. Like it's just a lot of get off of me. You know, so I will answer that question first because that's easier. And that is black folks. A lot of our parenting styles are just regurgitated, warped, ways of controlling mm. black people from the plantation. Mm. And so if your baby is not harming anyone, if your baby isn't harming themselves, you put in whatever kind of boundaries around behaviors, what's right, what's wrong, but the littles, they lead the way. You can literally just yeah. be like, okay, so what are we doing? 
provide a schedule, provide the, you know, the, the guidelines of like how the day needs to go. But for the most part, like let them cook. Like it's okay. It's okay to be like, you know, Oh, the baby said we're not working today. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to work. I guess we're going to (laughs) do That's what it gets. Yeah, we've called it to work for us. (laughs) So it's you know it's that it's it's reminding black families, black queer families especially, we're creating our families oftentimes without a model, without an example. Yeah, so you can't do it wrong. That's really important. So many of us were quote unquote raised the right way and have a lot of feelings about that way, and so as black queer parents specifically. You're, you're writing it. You're creating it. And, you know, just a little side note, there was a family that I was helping with their insemination recently, and um, they had y'all and Aww, East. Oh, that's so sweet. You know, that right. makes me want to cry. I'm, cry. I'm, cry. I'm sorry. I'm not going to cry. I, I almost I'm did. not crying. That I is very special. That's super special. But it's, but it's because, you know, just like it's often said, you know, we don't have a lot of queer elder yeah. couples to look yeah. at as to like, how do we do yeah. this? How do we be married? How do we have a life and well, buy a house? Be and, it to be an and so it's the same thing. So, okay. okay. I'm only 33. I'm an, as a transgender person. I guess I'm an elder. And he thinks, he thinks he's 85 though. So mm. you've made it to an elder. Mm. <laughs> I mean, well, that, that's just, I've been 85 since I was five. <laughs> no, but it's a good point. And, and, the, and I guess the babies, what do you, what advice do you give to people who are like, ah, what do I do? IUI, IVF, how do I have this baby, yes. you know? Yes. Yeah. So thank you. I will say, again, testament to my amazing and incredible queer teachers in midwifery school who didn't even realize how they were radicalizing those of us that were ready to have that information because... Um, so when I opened the community birth center, it was 2011. My daughter was six months old and my sons were five and seven. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was a single parent. I was divorced. And um, I would be in there with a kid on my hip and someone coloring and folks would come in and they would just want to hear like, what, what is this midwifery? What is this? And they would see me with my children and be like, wait a minute. Like, what are you doing right now? Oh, well, I'm taking care of my babies while I'm doing these charts and da 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 da, da. So it was for me yeah. about modeling okay. it for my clients. So them seeing me parent, it made it easier for them to receive information yeah. around parenting, number one. Because midwives are not thought as authorities on anything yeah. with regards to reproductive health. It's yeah. midwives mm-hmm. catch babies. Yeah. That's it. So number one, modeling parenting for them in a way that doesn't feel gendered, that doesn't feel patriarchal, just literally just like me with my kids. Um, I encourage Black queer folks, Indigenous queer folks specifically to go Mm. into your communities for your Mm. firm, for your support, Mm. for your education, because we've always helped ourselves. We've always supported ourselves. We've always kept ourselves safe. That's just historical. Um, when we had the birth center, when I had the birth center, I actually had a secret Rolodex of folks in the community who were like, if anybody needs Mm. sperm, you can call me. It was a very select group of folks 
that they just, they weren't about to have kids. They weren't interested in having children and they had donated to people before and they found out that I was helping people with that. And so it got to a point where people would just connect with people in their community that they knew had donated sperm before, or they would ask their family members or their friends, or I call it family, Mm -hmm. friends that become family, asking them like, hey, so do you know anybody who has sperm? And from there, the conversation begins. And depending upon how much you want your community to be a part of your family, because that's a part of it is talking about, you know, where are we going to get sperm from? We have the big major banks and how much that costs, but then finding a provider that acknowledges who you are and who you're bringing with you on this journey and it being respectful and it being, you know, obvious that they're honoring who it is in front of them. If that's not happening, then you have to, you have to take care of yourself. And so I'm a midwife that I like to educate people to the point where their subsequent reproductive health issue, they have enough information. They feel like maybe they can take care of it themselves. Like I don't want people to be dependent upon me. I want people to have enough information and education Mm -hmm. through time with me that they feel like, well, I'll just call myself. I have a question, but I think I got this. We had a lot of self inseminations during the time that we had the birth center. We had a lot of families that, you know, wanted to do things like, oh, well, my cousin said he's going to donate sperm for us. Will you test his sperm? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A midwife can do that. Absolutely. We can send it off to the lab and look at motility and viability and all that other good stuff. You know, midwifery at its foundation is about supporting the community and educating the community so that when the midwife isn't there anymore, the community still has the information and can Mm -hmm. continue to take care of themselves. And hopefully it gets passed on to another midwife, but that families just become so good at caring for themselves and trusting themselves that then they're relying on each other to get and do the things that they need to do. And so I find that prevalent in the queer community at every age group. 20s, they're keeping each other safe in the club. Girl, don't smoke that. Don't drink that. Don't (laughs) like... And then in the 30s, it's like, mm, yeah. maybe not go home with that person. Yeah. Maybe break not up go home with that, with that person. person. Don't Later in the 30s. 30s. Right. <laughs> or break up with that person. Or persons. Okay. And so, you know, this is an extenuation of that. That mm-hmm. is, a, It's a continuation of that. Like, just how we keep our baby queer safe, we got to keep our birthing queer safe. So it's like, okay, I've had a baby. Let me make sure I'm accessible in the community so that they know that they can come to me and I can help them with that. But more often than not, I'm spending a lot of times time helping people figure out like the different ways to get pregnant where you yeah. don't even need a healthcare provider. Yeah. Yeah. Where you can just do it yourself. That if you do want to have a healthcare provider, that midwives are an option. Um, for folks that, you know, maybe their health issues are more complex figuring out, finding out who are the safe healthcare providers in the medical industrial complex that you can go to and get what you need. There are queer doctors. Thank Mm -hmm. goodness. Now there are trans doctors now. Like, thank goodness. Um, And, you know, people travel cross country to go get their care from them when they're going through their pregnancies as queer folks, as trans folks. Like there's other, there's a lot of nuance. You know, I have, I've had trans clients who, really did not want to stop tea once they got pregnant because they were concerned with body dysmorphia. 
just real thing. Like it's yeah. real for any gender. Like all of a sudden your body is doing mm-hmm. things that you have no control over and people are responding to you in a way mm-hmm. that is very gendered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, having to talk to them and know enough about tea to be able to navigate that conversation and then provide midwifery care that continually uplifts and holds up the mm-hmm. mirror of who they are as a person and not letting mm-hmm. them feel like there's things happening that they like keeping people grounded in who they are and, and, and honoring who they are and yeah. not trying to make them different. You know, I will share with queer families, you know, if you have a bad vibe in your meeting interview with your doctor, midwife, birth worker, whatever, then yeah. that's yeah. not your person. So the same way that, you know, you, we make decisions based upon how we feel safe. It's the same for when it's time for us to have our babies, when it's time for us to get pregnant, when it's time for us to, you know, parent these children. Yeah. Finding the parenting groups that are safe for trans yeah. parents, for queer parents. Like the white folks will have them, but then when you show okay. up with your black self so and your black baby, okay. and all of a sudden it's not quite as safe, okay. even though no. this is okay. for queer people, it's for trans people. Okay. What? I, I forgot a question. I'm sorry. Oh. Also, your advice no, for really? postpartum. Um, I feel like we always leave out postpartum. Mm-hmm. So I feel like something you taught me was to rest for 40 days, which I did not have necessarily the privilege or the luxury to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really wasn't about luxury so much as it was that it was an emergency birth and we just were trying to handle so many things and having a baby in the NICU, it was hard for me to stay away from the NICU. So the resting and like not moving for 40 days was something I just was unwilling to do, but Mm -hmm. I understood and if I ever have a baby again, I want to be able to lay there for 80 days. Mm. Um, <laughs> so what is your advice for folks who are navigating? Postpartum is forever. Mm-hmm. So what is your advice for folks who are perhaps newly navigating postpartum um, and maybe need some guidance with that? I mean, I know that's a big question. I know we are over time, but I wanted to... Absolutely, just acknowledge postpartum too while we had you. you want to and, and, and I, and well, really you know, I, mm-hmm. sorry, Rashad. Just it feels, like no, no, no. You mentioned, you know, it can feel lonely and very isolated. Yes. You know, postpartum. And a lot of what you talk about, Rashad, with um, midwifery and with the creation of all the birth centers that you created and, and been a part of, just that community aspect and yeah. how to keep that. Um, that's a vital part of um, midwifery and our African traditions and indigenous traditions. Yeah, it takes a village. It it really do take a village. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of deal with the sort of nuances of that and the challenges that come with that? Because people kind of just be forgetting that you had a baby. They kind of handle you pretty carelessly and roughly more so than you get treated probably a little bit better when you're pregnant versus when you had a baby. Yeah. I mean, it takes a village and then the village sometimes believe it. So mm-hmm. it's like, what What do you do? Because it, it's like Ebony said, it shifts. Well, the systems and the structures of the world are in the village. So everything that's outside okay. of the village is in, where okay. it's in the village. Sometimes the village wants to kill you just like the hospital does. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm just. That's another podcast. Is that another podcast? Okay. Sorry, Rashad. Sorry. That's another podcast. Sorry, we're that's postpartum. Another we're postpartum, Rashad. Post- <laughs> You're postpartum. You're exhausted. Please come back. Please come back. 
we're coming there. We coming to. Sarah, I'm going to the birth party. I'm, the birth I'm, I'm pregnant. We going to the postpartum room. You sure? We're going to the postpartum room. I'm heading to the east, and I'm gonna go lay down. <laughs> um. You know, I, and I will, I want to, I want to apologize to all of your folks that are coming here and like wanting their checklist to like make their list. Cause I definitely didn't oh, yeah, provide that worry. in that they, way. Don't come here for, but, for no list. We were just having a conversation. Go to Rashad, <laughs> book Rashad to make a list. Don't come here for no free list. No, you are booking Rashad. Yes. We're going to be talking about all the ways you can continue to support <laughs> this incredibly powerful, radical, rare I mean, this stance that Rashad is having and having a brick and mortar yes. birthing center in the United States. Yes. And in the free, nothing free. And That's what I'm saying. At one piece of advice. And, and, it, and it's not in the, and I'll say this, sorry, I'm a Gemini. I'm a Gemini. It's not in the <laughs> metropole. So you started in a metropole in, in Los Angeles because that's where you're from and that's where your community is and that's where the need was. But then you went in a place where the need is even greater. Yeah. And it's even more remote, and black people are even more. It was a southern state. It's the birth yeah. of a nation, Virginia, Jamestown, yeah. sixteen nineteen. Yeah, and you're there. It's so charged and so loaded. But oftentimes, black people in the south get left out of these very metropolitan conversations about it's true. Referee and birth. It's true. And you went to the place that others won't go. Yeah, it's so. true. So it's that's true. a lot. Sorry, postpartum. Be quiet. But that was a word, though. That was a word. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. I thank you, Ebony, mm-hmm. for saying that. Um, I definitely uh I hear you in a very specific way, Ebony, because you're saying what my grandmother basically is saying to me when I call her for pep talks. She was like, Girl, you were in LA. She was like, Of course it's gonna be easier. Like yeah. it's LA. It's Los Angeles, it's the coast. And she was like, It's gonna be exponentially harder in the South is not going to be easy. And so I wasn't prepared for easy, but it, it, it's, uh, it's challenging me. And if this, if it's a glimpse, even an, an iota of what my ancestors have to, had to go through. Mm-hmm. I don't even have words for that because this is hard work and it's not less hard yeah. because it's 2024. Um, when folks are deciding to be pregnant, get pregnant, have babies, and they happen to be black and they happen to be queer, they need to be thinking about who are the people that they trust their life with. Because I don't know if you remember this, Erica, but there was the moment right before your surgery where it was like, if anything happens to Erica, what happens with the baby? Uh, their father yeah. right there, their other parent. Yeah, and it's like those people don't realize that. Yeah, part. like it's actually very, very real. So it's for my queer folks. You know, we're looking at like, do y'all have paperwork in order? Mm-hmm. At least like a little mm-hmm. notary. Like this is my partner. Yeah. If anything happens to my baby, if anything happens to me, like that's the the basics. Like I I want folks, queer folks that are in partnerships, throuples, households, like. Get really clear about what are y'all going to do very if good. things don't go well. Have that in order before anything else. And not just things don't go good with the birth, but things don't go good with housing or with food or with work or all the other things that for a lot of queer folks, 
can completely just put you in a place where you're yeah. all, now you're homeless. Now you're in a car. So making sure that those things are in order to the best of your ability with your people that you're close to and the people that you're calling in. Inviting your community to support you in paying for sperm, paying for your person that's going to provide the sperm to be there, be in your area. Like I've heard of folks driving two hours to go and be near sperm for when they were ovulating. So like reaching out to your community and being like, hey, we want to have a baby. How can y'all support us? These are the things that we need. And in that preparing for where's the safest place for me to birth, look at the hospitals and their statistics for death. Specifically, however it is that you identify, how do they deal with death? What is their statistic around death? What is their C-section rate? What is the likelihood of you getting a surgery that you don't even need? And then who is going to be at the house for you after this baby is born? Whether you have this baby at the house or in someone's center or cottage or house, a friend's house um, or, you know, whatever. But like, who's going to hold it down? Who who is going to be on the tree to be like, okay, we need food. We need pajamas. We need this. So that's that part. And then the postpartum. Who is willing to come and hold our baby in the middle of the night so we could just sleep at 2 a.m.? That question, you got to ask the real question again. I don't think people really understand. Who are the ones that will come in the middle of the night to hold a baby so that like for real hold the baby? Like we'll sleep in the daytime so they can like for real hold the baby so that parents can. It it may. I mean. Like it's super important, and this mm-hmm. is yeah. all yes, birthing all people. Yep. Yep. Before, yep, all birthing people. Historically, black people before we had to carry so much because I, on a regular, have clients that have at least mm-hmm. two jobs while pregnant mm-hmm. here in Virginia. That's it's commonplace. Yeah. I have a lot of clients that are holding multiple jobs. So if they're holding multiple jobs, their parents are yeah. probably still working. We've lost that thing where mama or mima or grandma whomever comes and stays with you after you have this baby and then don't be queer and have a super baptist mima yeah she not coming yeah so it's really getting clear about okay who are my people for all of the parts of this journey and then not being afraid to ask them the hard questions hey so Perfect example. Hey, so uh, we have food stamps. Can I give you my EBT card? And can you go get yeah. groceries for us and just bring them to the house? Mm-hmm. Yep. Little tiny things like that. You know, again, can someone come over one night a week in the middle of the night, yeah. nine to nine maybe, or 10 to 10, and just hold the baby down so we can get a straight number of hours of sleep yeah. so that we're not cross-eyed tomorrow? Finding the family, friends, close, close treasured people that you would, you know, this is your child. You want people that you trust, people that you know will keep your baby safe while you're trying to get some sleep, while you're trying to heal from Mm, however you got this baby out of your body. Um, Because those people end up becoming the aunties and the uncles and the nuncles and the nonties. (laughs) That was what somebody told me. Um, You know, the same folks who are going to hold your baby at pride. Like, all the same folks. And so really getting very clear about who those people are and that not everyone is going to continue on this journey with you. The same people that you clubbed with are probably not the same people that you walk the park with. The folks you have over for family holiday dinners, they look different once you have a baby because 
Then there's the creating of your own traditions, things you don't want your child to take on, things that you don't want to take on as you are creating your family and what that looks like for you yep. as a parent. Um, and, and, you know, I will say the best years of my midwifery life as a parent, as a single parent specifically, was the two years that I had a nanny. A lot of people don't know that. I moved someone in to basically just make my life easier. I had a spare bedroom. I had three children. I was going to six births a month. And like there, there isn't any one person that can hold that down for me. And so I found someone who wanted to live with me, who needed a place to live. And we figured yeah. out a subsidy in exchange. They were happy because well, y'all had my kids. Chance. So they were I'm, like, I'm, I get to eat a lot of people's food. I'll, I'll be your lady right now. I don't <laughs> eat a lot of people's food. I'm telling you right now. I, don't. I know your kids are kind of grown, but I'll watch them. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, it was something that I was very embarrassed to share as a midwife, as a black midwife, especially because people automatically yeah. then go to, oh, you got money. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> no. But that's what I needed in order to be a midwife to the community and also make sure my children were cared for and mothered and felt parental love and, and support. And that person would drive my children up to the birth center when I worked late. They would take them on all the little different adventures that I mm. couldn't go to because I had to go to a birth. And these yeah. are things that you don't really think about. But it's like, okay, well, I had three roommates in college. Why wouldn't I just get a yeah. very responsible roommate and part of our exchange is that you watch my child for x amount of hours a day and it's somebody that i am in community with it's somebody that i already trust you yeah. already have keys to my house like yeah. let's so do this and so that's so me, far remote this is like what used to happen yes yeah this is what used to happen yeah. this is what used to happen and so that's how yeah. you get through postpartum is you have people mm -hmm. literally just come stay with you for days mm -hmm. or weeks and they're coming to pour into you. They're not coming to take from you and they're not coming to be hosted by you. And that is something that we struggle with in this community, mm -hmm. in this country, I should say, is like, oh, I want to be there for the pregnancy. I want to rub the belly. I want to be at the baby shower. What do you want me to give you for the baby? But then when you're like, okay, but now I'm exhausted and I have this new baby and we're tired and it's like, oh, that's cute. You come into the day party on Sunday? Yeah, Rochelle. You are literally. You're skipping ahead, Rochelle. You're not, you're skipping, not ahead. skipping ahead. You're right on. You're right. Oh, you're skipping ahead to our <laughs> other podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's right. It oh. literally could just lead right into it. It's true. It's true. And for people who are so. listening to this and wanting to get pregnant, understand that we heard the same thing that uh, birth workers in our lives, Rashad told us that this there was a possibility of this being what would happen. People be very excited while you're pregnant and then disappear when the baby comes. And that is exactly what happened. And as like a optimistic Sagittarius, I was like, it's not going to happen. These people love us. They're there for us. They're, mm -hmm. they're showing so much love. I feel like they could be godparents. Gone. Gone. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, not, that's not a unique experience. There's so many it's people that I've spoken mm -hmm. to that postpartum had lost some of the closest people to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's really hard to be yep. a parent. Yeah. It's really hard to be yep. black and be a parent because from the moment you have the positive pregnancy test, 
everything around you is telling yeah. you how it's going to go wrong, yeah. how the baby's yeah. going to die, how you're going to die, or, you know, the, the what is yeah. it, preschool to prison yeah. pipeline, like everything is negative. And so for a lot of folks, when the baby comes, where they were so excited, like, yay, the baby, but then the reality of it hits and they're not the parents and they're like, ooh, that's intense. I'm good luck with that. And they disappear. And it's not usually from a place of hurtfulness or malice, but it's just the reality of that's a huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. Like, ooh, I don't think mm -hmm. I can yeah. help you with that. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's really deep. Um, I think it's um, real. It's, and I think, and this is why I say, and I, I cannot keep saying this about what you have been doing yeah. for the last 20 years, Rashad, is you're not just delivering, you know, babies and, you know, being, you know, doing medical work or, you know, being a, a healthcare provider, you are providing a lot of frameworks. You are reclaiming our African indigenous practices around community that will ultimately keep us here and keep black people on the planet. 100%. It's a beyond having a baby. Yeah. It's wet and having a baby is noble and it's all good and well. And it's so what you do is so much more than that. It's black future work. It's black. It's creating a black future. It really is. It, it is. is. Mm -hmm. But this is the piece. This yeah. is this is this is the ha ha. Yeah. This is how it's always been. It's yeah. just that it was taken from us. It was removed. Yeah. I did not invent this. I'm doing the exact same thing my grandmother did. The exact same thing her grandma did. Having a standard and then being uncompromising around it because it's for the health and benefit and 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 wellness of my community. I'm like, like it's yeah. it's not rocket science. It's simple. You know, people want to speak to the futuristic nature of midwifery, but the thing is, is it's just doing what it's always been. It's it's removing the the center part yeah. where white folks got involved and muddied it and made it something that it's not. It's taking what was in yeah. the past and just continuing it. And I have been uncompromising and unyielding in regards to how I show up for Black people because I believe that every Black person, every mm -hmm. Indigenous person deserves this. Like it shouldn't be an anomaly to have people care about you who also are going to be at your birth. To have people care about your dog and be at your birth, like to know the names of your other children, to know the names of your ancestors. Like that was a part of yeah. midwifery from the beginning of time. You didn't step into someone's house without first honoring their ancestors. And so me choosing to just stay very much in what it has always been then my hope is that it will continue, that it won't just be a section of a museum somewhere like, oh yeah, I remember traditional midwives back in the old days. <laughs> yeah. So my hope is number one, uh, that I always leave a family better than I found them, even yeah. though they're fine. They don't need me, but it's like, if I can give them more, support them in such a way that they're like, ooh, we're good now. Like that's, that's, that's super important. Um, the whole, you know, teach someone to fish. Like if I can help people IUI themselves or, you know, inseminate themselves or manage their own pregnancies themselves, like I'm about it. Um, and then also creating really strong boundaries around staying, you know, pregnant and then staying sane in your postpartum. Like 
honoring your boundaries. All I'm doing is doing the same thing as my ancestors. And with the hope of specifically here in Virginia, making a huge difference in the number of black midwives that are here to support the community. Because it is not a coincidence that black midwives, traditional midwives, make up less than 6% of traditional midwives, home birth midwives in the country. In the country. You got thousands, thousands of white midwives and black folks, we make up less than 8%. And so every time, every state I've ever worked in, it was in the hopes of blossoming that. And and blossoming it without um, without doing yeah. the same thing that those white nurses did. So it's like I'm gonna give you the information, I'm gonna give you the education, I'm gonna give you the experience. Whether or not you get licensed, that's on you. Because I yeah. understand yeah. why people wouldn't. But what I can do is make sure that I pass on the information to as many people as possible, in hopes that it makes a larger difference for our Absolutely. communities as a whole. Absolutely. You're the best. We could talk to you forever. And we didn't held you for longer than what we said. I set aside like three hours. I was like, I don't know how long they're going to This has been such a treat. I really hope that people uh, listen to this and take heed to the advice. Where can people find you? Where can they find your work, Rasha? How can they support your work? How can they support the Burden Center? Yes. Where is it located? How folks can get involved in making sure this continues. Yes. Okay, so uh, I am on all the socials. Uh, well, not all. Mm-hmm. I'm on TikTok and I'm on Instagram. Uh, Gather Grounded Midwifery. And then the website is gathergroundedmidwifery.com. Uh, on Insta, I'm also Rasha Tahani. And people that want to support the birth cottage, okay. we have the GoFundMe is still up. If people don't want to donate to the GoFundMe, the phone number of the business is on the website. You can sell it directly. Just send it over. I know people are worried about fees and things. Um, and then, you know, support the black midwives in your community. Like if you can Google black midwifery student, indigenous midwifery student, right in the town city that you live in and, you know, yeah. drop some coins in their pocket because yeah, yeah. This is hard. It's hard from the beginning, from the moment you decide to be a midwife, to becoming a midwife, to deciding to be credentialed, getting credentialed, yeah. and then practicing. Um, it's all difficult, and it's without the support of you know the government or financial groups, fiscal organizations, um, unless you meet the very specific criteria. And even then, you know, just trying to reduce the barriers. People can show up as individuals and make a huge difference to the lack of black and indigenous and queer midwives and birth workers in this community by just putting coins in their bank. I love that. I love it. And that dream will be realized that you mentioned. Yes. I'm speaking it into existence. Yes. You said maybe I say I share. So it is. Yes. You know? That's right. We love you, Rashad. Thank you. Rashad's birth cottage, birthing center. Yes. All my folks in Virginia. We're gonna have all this information, everything 
in the description of the podcast. We're going to have links for y'all. Yes. We're going to get y'all all of it. The GoFundMe. The GoFundMe. We're going to have it all there. We're going to make it very easy. Yes. And I want to make sure that your baby calls you on his birthday. I will take I will take a I will take a <laughs> phone call at any hour. Thank you so much. I really love you, Rashad. I love you. you. I thank you. Really do. Thank you. I love y'all. I'm I'm honored for always and uh honored to have been chosen to go on this journey with you. Thanks for sure. I'm not crying no more. Don't even do it. <laughs> we'll see you down there. You don't have to come up here because we're gonna come. We're down coming down there. We'll yes. Okay. All right. I would love to see y'all here in Virginia. Make your way. Yes. It's um. It's super important to have your community, to have your loved ones. It's the only that's way. The way you get it's the only way. That's how we've done it. It's the only Thank way. Rashad is a constant reminder of what. Thank you for saying how that. it's done. Thank you for saying that. How it's always been done. Yes. Thank you. I honor and venerate my ancestors in that way. We're going to end here. Well, we love you. Love you. We'll be catching up with you on the off the channel. Yes. You know, so we can really get into it. <laughs> Thank you all. Love you.